Welcome back to In Search Of, the podcast where we go in search of voices and ideas that expand and enrich a life of faith. This season on In Search Of, we are exploring the forgotten worlds of lost women in the Christian tradition. Last week, I made a big deal about how when we talk about the Samaritan woman, we often get sidetracked into talking about sin, to the degree that we fail to notice that there is no mention of sin or of forgiveness in John chapter 3. But this week, we're all about sin. The question is, what sin and whose sin? I'm talking with historian Kate Cooper about her new book, Queens of a Fallen World, in which she explores the lives and contexts of the women around St. Augustine. Kate Cooper is a professor of history at Royal Holloway, University of London, and she shares my obsession with this subject. Her book, Band of Angels, explored the forgotten worlds of biblical women, beginning with what she called a missing persons case, the case of Phoebe, the woman that Paul commends in Romans chapter 16. But when you talk about St. Augustine, you have to talk about sin. One of the fascinating things that comes up in this conversation with Dr. Cooper is which sin Augustine was more concerned about, lust or pride? For several hundred years, it's lust that we think of when we think of Augustine, and that's because of his provocative and intimate writings on this subject. But Dr. Cooper makes a pretty strong argument that Augustine is far more concerned about the effect of the sin of pride, especially that sin as it was embodied by the powerful men in his context. And that changes the story just enough that it's worth taking another look. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Cooper, on In Search Of. I'm really delighted to be here. And I love your theme of tracing lost women in the Christian tradition, because that's just exactly what interests me. I'm so, And that is exactly why I invited you. And I'm so delighted to have you here. I wonder if you could just start by talking about why in your latest book, you chose to explore the women around St. Augustine. What what drew you to them? And, and why not just one woman? I mean, there's a lot of books about the woman that you call Una, and a lot of kind of speculative history on her, but you chose something different. And I wonder if you could just talk about that. It's a great question. I, I like many scholars, I've been in interested in Augustine forever, because the Confessions is such a lively personal narrative. And you have, you know, you have a window into family life in the late Roman period that is genuinely unique. So as a historian of women in the family, I've always wanted to write about about the confessions as a source for the Roman family and as a source for Roman women. And I think Augustine is, a, you know, he's it's such a fascinating and emotionally involving narrator that he gives you this feeling that you really know the people that he's talking about. And uh, he tells stories about his family life as he grew up, starting with his babyhood. He tells stories about his mother's childhood and her early marriage. So those are obviously stories that were told to him. Uh, And then he even tells stories about his grandfather's childhood. So there's a real storytelling tradition that he's picking up on that I really resonated uh, with as somebody whose mother was from Alabama. So there were two things that made me feel that I individually really should write about the confessions. One of them was 
the the specific focus that he often has on women and childcare and things that are so interesting to me as a historian of women in the family. But the other thing that really fascinated me was I had a strong intuitive sense as somebody who grew up with this kind of storytelling. I had a strong intuitive sense that I understood some of the places where you could kind of read between the lines and hear an emotional dimension that was not quite obvious and that was sort of almost the family politics behind why the story was remembered or why the story was told. And, you know, if I were a novelist, I might have said, okay, I'm just going to shoot from the hip and tell people what, you know, what I think he really meant. But as a historian, of course, I, I had to really test that against what I know about the ancient family and what I know about uh, storytelling in the ancient world, you know, and, and really try to figure out how many of my intuitions, as it were, were really about me versus how many of them were a pathway into asking questions that I really could check out as a historian and really get somewhere with. Uh, so that was something that just completely magnetized me. Uh, and you you asked about, you know, why I chose to tell the story of multiple women rather than the story of Monica or the story of Una, the concubine whom he abandons, uh, you know, really tragically, I think many of us would say. And part of the reason was that I recognized really strongly in the narrative the voice of Monica as not only a storyteller, but a sort of pastoral parental storyteller who was steering her child by calling attention to certain moments in her own life or moments in the family history and trying to make him notice things. I think sometimes she tried to make him notice things without saying them directly, just kind of trying to steer him in to the part of his imagination where it would click for him. And I think, you know, anybody who's had children knows that that's a really smart way to work when you're trying to get your kids not to push back against you, but actually follow your guidance. So I really feel that Monica was somebody who had a very rich pastoral imagination as a mother and a parent. Uh, and by the time the Confessions was written, Monica had was long dead. But even at the time that she was telling some of these stories, she was a widow. Her husband was already dead, which meant that she had a position of responsibility that had really moved to front and center in the lives of her children. So in, in that sense, I just found the whole question of not only her voice, but also the kind of intelligence and the, the sort of pastoral filtering and shaping that she was doing, I found just so fascinating. And I also felt that there were really some very interesting choices that she makes about whose story she's going to tell and whom she's going to foreground. But then also the stories of, you know, what she suppresses and what she kind of quietly buries. Um, and in particular, I thought there were some really interesting choices about the other women who appear in the confessions. You can almost feel that, that Monica, you know, when she's talking with Augustine about 
his relationship with Una, his concubine. Um, you know, they're in in the in the mid three eighties. Uh, in 385 and 386, they're in a situation where Augustine has been living with a concubine for over a dozen years, and he's, he's got a child with the concubine who's being raised as a, an illegitimate child, but a beloved member of the family. The child, Adeodatus, has got a relationship not only with his mother, but also with his grandmother, Monica, and with Augustine. And it's very clear in the confessions that those are close personal relationships. This child isn't being kept on the margins. Um, but yet, in the mid-380s, the family who, who come from Roman Africa are living now in Milan, which is the imperial capital. And there is an opportunity for Augustine, who's, who has become a bit of a star on the scene at court in Milan, um, as, as a, a giver of speeches that have been praised at court. And there's an opportunity for him to marry money in a way that will allow him to have a political career, eventually possibly become a governor of a province or become a Roman senator, all things that are going to create a, a kind of, you know, a storm of opportunity for the rest of the family. So the whole family is really looking for him essentially to kind of cash in his chips and say, okay, I've worked all my life to develop these skills and now I'm in the right place at the right time. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be, take my position as a sort of social star or an influencer, if you like, in our modern terms. And, you know, and, and let a rich family choose me as a viable son-in-law and let them fund my political career which will give us all sorts of opportunities. So that, you know, so that's what everybody's expecting him to do in 385 and 386. And the only problem is that he's reluctant because he already has a family. He's got this woman that he says he's wildly in love with. They have a child. They're, you know, why on earth would he disrupt this situation from Augustine's pr perspective? And, um, you know, but yet at the same time, Everybody in a society like that, where really land is power, um, you know, everybody knows that you don't, you know, you don't create social mobility by earning a good salary. You create social mobility by marrying land, you know. And so in that sense, you know, it's the opportunity not only for him, but it's his duty to his, you know, his siblings and his cousins to, 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 um, to move up the social scale in the way that the right heiress will allow him to do. And famously, he, you know, he tells us in the confessions that his mother went on the hunt and she finds a viable heiress who's available, whose family are happy to take Augustine on. Uh, so it's all looking good. And then there's this stumbling block that Augustine, you know, having drifted along in the way, bless him, that I think, you know, men in, in the ancient world uh, seem to have done just as much as, as some young men in the modern world, you know, drifted through his 20s, not really having any serious thoughts about what he's going to do with his life or what he's going to do with when he settles down. He, you know, he gets involved in this relationship. And all of a sudden, he realizes that he'd always been planning that this relationship was going to end. But actually ending it is tremendously painful. 
you know, not to mention many people would say unethical. And he sort of, you know, I think he lives in a society that doesn't see it as unethical. People think that, you know, you know, money is so important. And of course, you're going to do this. You know, people, it's not like there was a huge uh, debate in the streets about should people marry money in the Roman period. <laughs> everybody knows that's what you do. But Augustine as a person of conscience, you know, he doesn't yet know that he's going to become an incredibly great church father, but he, you know, but he knows that he's a kind of philosophically thoughtful person who's been a little bit immature. He's been a little bit of a fool in some of his personal relationships. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to be a bad person. So how is he going to deal with this situation? And this is where Monica starts drawing on uh, the, the what the Italians call the familial lexicon, that you know the treasure trove of moral stories about cousins and grandparents and uh, and other people in the household, and she starts telling him stories that uh, that are designed to get him to see that really the humane thing to do is to do his duty, send the woman away make everybody happy, and it's really going to be okay. Augustine, for whatever reason, he tries to do this. Uh, and he does send the woman away uh, to, you know, to his great regret, if you read his later writings. Uh, but it doesn't really work. He has, you know, he has a kind of, uh, uh, you know, what we would call a freak out. And I, I think that's something that, um, it's interesting because you can even hear the way I'm telling the story. And I'm a historian of women. You know, Augustine as a narrator is such a big, big figure in our imagination. And he just, he sucks up a lot of oxygen. But on the other hand, the story that he's telling is fundamentally a story about a household in which a number of women are machinating to try to figure out who's going to get what they need. And basically, it's between his mother, Monica, who is, he seems to be working on behalf of the, you know, the brothers and, and, and his sister and the cousins, uh, you know, whereas Una is working on behalf of a Deodatus, the son. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of normal in the Roman world that women think of themselves as working on behalf of their dependence rather than, you know, put doing something for me. It's, you know, they just don't have the concept of female me time in the Roman period. But what, you know, what they do have is, is the idea that you as a woman can claim agency and even you should claim agency as long as you're claiming it for the noble purposes of motherhood or wifehood or these, these roles that are understood to be what knits society together. Um, and in, in the case of the confessions, what I think we really see is a kind of clash between the maternal ambitions of Monica trying to help her son and his siblings and the maternal ambitions of Una, Augustine's concubine, who knows that if Augustine marries an heiress and goes on to have legitimate children, her son, Adeodatus, is going to get sidelined because he's illegitimate. And um, in that period of Roman history, a man who didn't have legitimate heirs had the possibility of adopting an illegitimate child. And that's obviously what Una is going to want in that situation. We have no direct evidence of her intentions at all. 
but it seems to be what she would want in terms of what we know about the society uh, in which they're living. Um, and then, you know, there there are two other women in in the book who who play big roles, and then some uh, some other smaller characters who have their own kind of emotional power. But the the two I really do want to mention is um, one is the heiress uh, because she is, you know, Augustine treats her absolutely as a one liner. He, he mentions that you know that her his mother found her. Arrangements were made, and then when he breaks engagement, he he wants to make sure that we know that there she didn't do anything wrong, you know that it was all in you know it's not me it's it's not you it's me it was all in his head, but that's all he tells us about her. Oh, he tells us one other thing, which is that she was ten, ten years you know, old, you know, because yeah. he's ten years old. These you know the age of marriage is twelve, and Monica had you know the way she had managed to kind of reserve a good dowry was by kind of prearranging with a family whose daughter hadn't quite come up onto the market yet. And that, you know, that's classic Roman, uh, Roman family planning. But so he's, you know, in a sense, Tacita, the, the, um, the fiance, and I call her Tacita, which is just Latin for the silent one. We don't know her name. And Augustine probably very intentionally didn't mention her name because he didn't, you know, he didn't want to create problems for her or for her family, having given her this terrible insult of ending their engagement. Uh, but it, but she, you know, she's a super mysterious figure because you know, there are many young women in the Roman world who were born around 375 when Tasta would have been uh, born, who kind of appear later in the historical record. But if one of them is her, we don't know. You know, it's just he manages to keep her name out of this. And so she's just a kind of cipher in the story. Uh, But that really, to me, that was really fascinating. I wanted to try to understand what it would have been to be a child bride in this, uh, you know, in this society. And we have lots of comparative evidence from uh, from the modern world about societies that have child marriage. But the other thing that I was really interested in is that ancient novels sometimes talk about these very early marriages and, um, and you know, and they sort of talk about uh, young women kind of, you know, talking with their parents about who will be the right husband and so on. So I, th- I thought it would be really interesting to try to imagine what could, what can we reasonably say Tacita would have known about what it meant to get married from that very early age. Uh, so, so that Tacita was my third principal character. And then the fourth character, which some people have been really surprised to see in the book, but I think she's really important, is, uh, is the Empress Justina, who is the, you know, the, the Western Empress of the Roman Empire at the time. She's, the, she's really the sort of Empress Dowager, her son, who's, who's in his teens, is the emperor. Uh, but she's a, a figure who was involved in a, in a big dispute with St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan at the time. And she, it's clear that she's a, a really big figure on the horizon in, in Milan while all of this is going on. And something that's really interesting is that Augustine actually talks about her and he talks about the tension that, um, that, that exists between her and, and the Bishop of Milan. Um, and I I thought that it was actually 
really, really worth paying some attention to her, even though she's another one-liner in the Confessions. He, Augustine talks about her very briefly. But for two reasons, I thought it would be really good to get more into depth with her. One is that I'm, I'm hoping that some of the people who read Queens of a Fallen World are going to be people who really don't know that much about Roman history, you know, who maybe read the Confessions in college and really, you know, they kind of know it's medieval, but they're not really that clear on it. And so, um, or they're not really clear on the historical context. And because of, because Justina is a person who whose whole life is really uh, pegged into the wider world of Roman politics and the fact that the Roman Empire is falling and the fact that there's a civil war going on in Italy at the time and that Milan is just about to be invaded by a usurper and all of these tensions that many people who read the confessions really don't know about. So I thought it was actually really useful to, to have a layer of the book be what's going on in the wider world through the lens of this woman who was really involved in these kind of big world events, um, even though she's also a physical person who's, you know, who's there on the ground as a human being in that, you know, in that in the same city. But I, I just thought it, it, it would be useful to help the readers to get a footing and understanding what that world was like and what and what the pressures were that these families were facing, uh, because I, I think it's it's something that's always fascinated me in um, like, you know, like many uh, academics who, who've taught in American universities. I've had the pleasure and privilege to teach great books courses where, you know, one week you're looking at Dante and the next week you're looking at uh, you know, someone 100 or 200 years later. And one of the things that's always frustrated me is that it's hard to find readings that the, you know, the, the students can go to to really understand what that world was like. Why did Thomas More say the things in Utopia that he says that are really specific to that early modern moment that he was in? You know, and so similarly with the Confessions, when I was, when I was teaching uh, that kind of teaching, I always wished Somebody had written a kind of companion to the confessions that was just lively social history that would really get you into that world. Uh, so in that sense, I, I felt that it would be really interesting to kind of try to take that as a as a project. Uh, and Justina was really, for me, Justina was the key that kind of unlocked that possibility. The other thing it gives you as a reader, I think, is you now have three women vying on behalf of their sons. And so it becomes a pattern. When you have two women, it be, it's a it's a bifurcation. It's like, oh, okay, a divided family yeah. with different people. A sort of a face off, off right? But yeah. then you add Justina vying on behalf of her son, and then you start to see, okay, this is what it was to try to exercise power, whatever power you had in the Roman world. So it really did that for me. It broke open the bifurcation of the the kind of interfamilial politics and cast that on a bigger stage so that I really appreciated that as well as now I understand okay why was the Bishop of Milan in such uh, an interesting position vis-a-vis Monica and what does that mean in terms of the empire and you know all of that all of a sudden it was it was really clear how that works but what about the fifth woman who is so obscure and so hidden in the in um 
You're thinking I'm of thinking Illa. Illa, yes. Yes. I have to say, I when I first read the confessions as, as a student, Illa just stopped me in my tracks uh, because I just thought it was so interesting that, and I'll just recap for a second for those who haven't read the confessions recently. Augustine tells a story that Monica clearly told him in, in, um, in book nine, when he's giving a sort of overview of Monica's life, and it's it's really the lead up to the scene of Monica's death. Book nine is is sort of it's it, it's a kind of ultimately it's almost a prayer for Monica uh, at at her at her uh, after her death, and um and he's kind of try he summarizes his mother's life and what she tried to do and what she tried to be, and one and. And one of the things he does in this, uh, in this sort of hagiographical account of Monica's life, is to tell a number of stories that she had told about her life, uh, more more or less in the order of her of of her life rather than the order of when she told them to him. If if you see what I mean, and one of them is a story about how when she was a, a child in Numidia. She uh, she had a companion who was an, an enslaved child whose name we don't know. We don't know exactly how old she was, but this uh, she Augustine refers to her at one point as that one, which in Latin is Illa, and that for me that just became her name. So I call her Illa. And uh, what Illa does in the story is uh, when Monica is there serving the wine for the table of, of Monica's parents. And they, they go to the cellar to get the wine together. And Monica starts sipping the wine, which is prohibited because both because it's alcoholic and, uh, and it's just sort of disobedient. And, um, and Illa makes fun of Monica. And Augustine says that m- when Illa did this, Monica realized that Illa was right and that she should you know she should she should stop doing this and and uh and break this bad habit that she was getting into and he, and he he adds that uh and Monica knew that God doesn't always choose to speak through the powerful uh and that idea that the the order of life here on earth uh in what Augustine calls the seculum doesn't reflect God's intentions for the world that God's intentions you know the city of god is 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 the social order that's going to be revealed to us at the end of time it's not that power here on earth is god's perfect vision of perfection it's it's provi- the powers here on earth are provisional and they can be wrong and that's one of augustine's absolutely most central insights later as a theologian uh you know when he lives through all sorts of you know, civil war and ecclesiastical schism that leads to violent religious rioting, uh, you know, and so he he's he lives in his career as a bishop through periods where you can really see that the earthly church isn't managing to bring the kind of peace and wisdom that, you know, that one would hope for from it. Uh, and, and, you know, this is one of the things that really helps him to create this theology of the provisional nature of authority here on earth and you know and the fact 
that God can choose the most unexpected people through whom to give the powerful their, uh, you know, their comeuppance or their correction. You know, and so in that sense, um, it's it, it's just a wonderfully important story for Augustine's theology. It's also important for helping us to understand the close relationship that he and Monica had and the kind of very considerable wisdom that Monica was able to develop and pass on to, you know, to her children and anyone else who found themselves listening to her storytelling in, you know, in a way that, again, to me as a Southerner, I recognize that so much. These sort of older women who are just telling you these stories and all of a sudden you realize, oh my word, now I see what she's trying to tell me here. This is just terrifying. You know, so that was all super interesting. But then the final thing, and this was what just broke my heart, but in a good way, was I realized, you know, here is this child. We don't know anything about Illa. We don't know whether she lived to age 10. You know, this is an enslaved child in Africa in the fourth century. You know, it just talk about lost voices. And yet here this child is literally creating the theological groundwork for the greatest of Latin theologians. It's just astonishing. astonishing. You know, if you think about, you know, that, you know, and, and lots of early medieval writers talk about you never know what the value of your actions in, you know, on this, in this life is going to be. You know, God is watching. Somebody else may be watching. Your, your actions may have a consequence that you don't know what it will be. You know, and in, in a way, I think that story just illustrates that principle so beautifully that this person who, um, you know, probably in all likelihood, uh, Illa's life was one in which she wasn't allowed to imagine herself as an influential person, you know, and yet and there she is influencing the tradition um, at, at such a core yeah, level yeah. that, yeah, that is an amazing exactly. way of drawing her out. And it kind of leads me to ask this next question, which is about the speculative nature of dealing with women in the Christian tradition and in these texts, um, because you're looking for things that aren't documented really. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, what that's like as a historian to kind of commit yourself yeah. to, well, it might be, or it should have been, or it could be. And and why do you do that? It's a great question. And in some ways, it's the most important question about this whole project, because one of the things that I've really noticed as I've been talking to people about the book and kind of discovering what they found fascinating about it or what they found challenging is that I've had a number of people ask me, okay, you know, I can see that in this book, you're often saying, we don't have the evidence. So what I'm going to do as a, you know, a a committed historian of the period is I'm going to lay out the possibilities and, and help us to sort of weigh what it would mean if A had happened or B had happened. So it's a kind of forensic exercise of trying to figure out where the evidence will take us and what we can see as possibilities at the point where the evidence leaves off. And one of the things that I've been really interested by, um, and this is this is something that I've I've had some fun conversations with historians of other periods, but I what I've really discovered with this is that often people, when they get to the point where the evidence doesn't tell them anything more than they already, you know, any when they get to the point where the evidence doesn't tell them 
more that they would like to know. Often what people will do is they'll simply say, well, common sense tells us dot, dot, dot. And the thing about common sense is it's anachronistic. Right. Where do we you get know, the, the common? That yeah. People s- it's exactly. You know, so you say, oh, well, you know, Monica was a widow, so she was probably poor and meek. Boy, that shows that you don't know anything about fourth century laws about female property ownership or, you know, et cetera, that, you know, what it means to become a widow in the fourth century if you're a person from a a family that has money is it's finally your moment where you've got access to your funds as you always have, but, uh, but now you don't have your husband getting in the way in terms of trying to influence how you use your money. So in that sense, the fact that Monica's a widow means that she's in a position of power rather than being in a position of being meek and mild. Now, that's not to say that a widow who was impoverished would be in the same position. But the point is, as a historian, it's your job to know as much as you can about the social location of these individuals, therefore, which laws and and, and so forth apply to them. And I think that um, that it's really exciting to try to open up our eyes so that we, on the one hand, anything that we can firmly uh, give evidence for, you know, let's do that. But then when the evidence is uncertain, then I think what we need to do is really lay out in an orderly and intelligent way, what are the possibilities and think through what are the consequences if that scenario turns out to be what happened, how would that change our understanding? Um, you know, so in, in that sense, I, I think actually speculation, rather than being a kind of, you know, romanticizing way of saying, oh, I'm just going to go with my intuitions because we don't know. Instead, I think it's actually much more responsible than sticking with common sense, because common sense actually will often lead you to make to make an assumption that really is anachronistic. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That you, it's really hard to under, to unpeel, I guess, your own assumptions and to really see them for what they are and then apply them to the history. That is a really complicated thing to do. And so I think that's why many historians just go to the text and, and stick with the text. But then what your work allows us to do is take the text and then ask questions about things that are surrounding the text and then piece that together to kind of offer a, a, a vision, a, an understanding that happens at an intuitive level. So at the end of the day, you, you do return to intuition, but, but this is a very informed that intuition of, and a way of reading a text. It's so, yeah, it's sort of almost a way of kind of checking your intuitions out against the context. And I think crucially, um, you know, if if we have a weakness in um, in our way of reading texts that come from the Christian faith tradition, often the weakness is that we we sort of think of the Christian story world as a parallel universe that isn't part of historical reality, and um, and I don't I don't think it's in any way you know an anti faith position to say that the challenges that Christians of different historical periods experienced and faced were in fact historically specific to the world that they were in. You know, so I I was talking earlier about 
how to me understanding um, the the fact that there was a civil war breaking out it, uh, in Milan at just the time that Augustine was uh, going through this crisis and the you know and the, the women that he was it, uh, involved with were you know were dealing with pressures that were what we would call real world pressures uh, to me that doesn't take away from understanding the the story of faith it's actually really helping to understand uh, you know a sort of embodied history of the faith of what you know people in real situations facing real challenges um, and I, I think that's something that is gender history or the history of women in the family gives us a real opportunity to to get some really useful and interesting surprises of seeing how people from different historical moments were facing things that actually are instinctively quite recognizable to us, even as we're having to see that, you know, the legal structures of the Roman household are so different in the fourth century. I mean, for the, to begin with, it's a slave society. You know, I hope that most of the listeners will find that to be a really, you know, a completely alien worldview. And yet, and yet once you understand those dynamics of how does a society work, then you can start to understand the sort of human dynamics of how people are struggling within that context. And that leads to a really interesting choice I observed in your book. Uh, Augustine speaks so tenderly of his relationship with Una, and he is so convinced that this is a loving relationship, and, and it seems to be something that's confirmed by his friends, by uh, that, that people around him say, now that is what I would like my own relationships to be like. But you're very careful not to assume that that his perspective on this relationship is her perspective. And how so talk a little bit about that choice and how you went through that as you were as you were dealing with this, you know, kind of one of the great love stories, maybe of the Christian tradition. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting because I think it's like reminding the reader that we don't know Una's side of the story. And what influenced me there um was you know, there's been so much absolutely marvelous work on the 19th century American household. Um, and, you know, and it's really, it's just been an absolute revolution in the last 50 years of how people understand the lives of the enslaved and the lives and the lives of the enslavers, uh, you know, and as, as somebody who grew up as, you know, as, as m many white Southerners did, with stories about, um, you know, how our family lived through the Civil War and the cast of characters includes enslaved people who are always talked about in this very, you know, lo loving way of, of, you know, Sarah, who was just such a, 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 you know, a pillar of strength for the whole family when, when they were, ca you know, cast away from their land by, you know, by the carpetbaggers, you know, and you know, and I mean, I've known since childhood that nobody knows what Sarah was thinking in that situation. And I would not be surprised if she did not adore my great-great-grandmother the way my great-great-grandmother adored her. You know, and, and that's really, I mean, to me, I mean, that is one of the great questions of my life. Sarah Kaiser, Trinity, Alabama in the 1860s. Does anybody know what happened to her? I've been through the census records. I cannot find her after 1865. Um, you know, but, you know, I'm sure that somewhere there is, 
somebody whose family has has a family tradition of the other side of that story you know and you know the horrible little girl mariah kaiser my great great grandmother who raised my mother and who my mother adored you know and you know and you just sort of think how you know how on earth can you imagine that sarah loved mariah the way mariah loved sarah right you know and so in, in that sense it just seems to me like we can't assume what Una felt for Augustine. She was in a situation of constraint where she had, in order to get what she needed to for her son, she had to perform amiability and she had to perform a sort of loving kindness that would give her the best possible chance of getting her sort of moral talons into this man who was exploiting her. And, you know, she did a good job and got all of this praise. And look, it led to nothing, got her nothing. Um, you know, so in that sense, it, it just would be surprising if she was wildly in love with somebody who would do that to her. Of course, you know, we know that women often fall in love with people who treat them badly. So it's possible that, you know, that that happened in this case. We just don't know. But the bottom line is that we don't have the social circumstances that would allow us to romanticize her social position or her feelings for Augustine. And that often gets missed, I think, when we tell this story, because we're so, because like you said, Augustine takes up so much oxygen and seeing things from his perspective and seeing how he loses kind of everything. He gets neither the heiress nor his, this, this relationship that he obviously treasured and valued. So he gets, he gets nothing at the end. And that's so compelling. Like you want to tell that story, but at the same time, I, I really did appreciate deeply how you continued to enact your own restraint to keep us from from doing that and reminding us that we don't know where she went we don't know what happened to her we we know her son died so we know that even even in that case she didn't she didn't get the kinds of outcomes that maybe she was hoping for and um yeah i just i really appreciated that um and i wanted then so just one more question that is on my mind anyway and yeah. is like how how did you see the christian tradition influenced by these stories what how did your understanding of power and how it functions and specifically in the relationship of augustine's theology which we usually think of as lust oriented um because he has this kind of you know he has these famous lines about his own his own sexuality and his own feelings of lust or whatever but but in your book you you take this in a little different direction i wonder if you could just talk about how your understandings of power and um greed and lust changed as you were exploring the women around St. Augustine. Yeah. Thank you. It's, I mean, I have to say, I do think one of the things that is, um, is marvelous, both about the confessions and Augustine's later writings on marriage and sexuality is that you really, you can see that Augustine as a person who is, you know, living and making mistakes and watching what goes on around him. He's really trying to learn, even though I think he's, you know, he's very clear on the fact that he keeps making mistakes. Um, But one of the things that I think is really, really interesting and moving about both about the confessions and then particularly if you read the confessions alongside his later writings about marriage. Um, Augustine advocates for something that is, you know, is 
it becomes a losing position theologically, which what he advocates for is the idea that um, marriage, <coughs> sorry, he advocates for the idea that Christians are, in his day, are, are essentially kind of hypocritically using the idea that marriage is a legal structure and that men really don't have to be responsible for any relationships that they have outside of marriage. And even though the Christian teaching is starting to talk about mutuality and about fidelity within marriage, basically in the fourth century, the, the Christian norm is to say, well, for women, obviously you have to be uh, sexually faithful and chaste, but for men, you know, you can't have two wives, but other than that, do what you want. And, you know, Augustine sees the hypocrisy of that, as do a couple of other uh, writers. The other really influential one is John Chrysostom, who around the same period. And, you know, and they're right. It was hypocritical. You know, so in that sense, good for him. <coughs> what Augustine uh, does is to take it one step further and write um, in his treatise on the on on the good of marriage, a treatise defending marriage against against the theoretical position that really the best Christians should dedicate themselves to virginity. Augustine writes this marvelous defense of marriage, and uh, and but what he says in it is, uh, you know, men, your real marriage is not to uh, to the person that you marry for money when you're forty. It's to the person who you start having sex with in your teens, who is, who is the, the partner of, of the, the earliest stable partner that you have in your life. And he's very clearly, from the wording of it, he's very clearly thinking about Una. And he's very clearly, and he literally says, you know, if you have a concubine and then you get married, you're an adulterer. But it's not that you shouldn't have had the concubine. It's that you shouldn't have gotten married because really you were already married. You know, and I think this idea of trying to hold men accountable for um, a kind of faithfulness in their sexual relationships. Um, it, as I said, it wasn't terribly influential, but I do think it, it shows a kind of honesty of purpose uh, that, you know, that is really um, that is really moving. And it, and I'm, I don't know, I'm inclined also, you know, Augustine does, he does say, you know, some pretty negative things about lust, but he, he, he also in other places really clarifies that it's not that sexuality is bad. It's that, you know, and he says there was sex in paradise, you know, but it's that what's bad is when when people kind of you know spin out of control and start behaving unethically to each other because of sexual desire because of financial greed you know it it's just it's it, it's the fact that we can spin out of control and hurt each other because of our excessive cravings that's the thing that he's really upset about when he when he's talking about greed and lust it, you know i don't think and i think he he says in city of god 14 he says really clearly that you know adam and eve in paradise that you know the sex was good 
But the problem is that we now live in a fallen world where our cravings and our desires and our needs are out of sync with one another. And so it sort of, you know, drags us into doing things at one another's expense. And I do think to his credit uh, and possibly to the credit of some of the women around him, uh, Augustine did get that the way he handled this, uh, you know, this situation of his um, of his engagement and and uh, leaving his concubine, he did get that what he had done was unethical, even though on the mores of the time, it was totally normal. You know, but in so in that sense, he's a kind of early adopter of a, of a somewhat more thoughtful and more mutual understanding of of sexual ethics. I Could I throw in one you more bet. thing on St. Monica? Yes. Because I think Monica gets a bad rap. People often will, will talk about her ambitions for her son, which were on the one hand, she wants him to succeed and do well in the world. And on the other hand, she wants him to, um, you know, to come to the faith and, and to become, you know, I think she, she, I think she sees that he's a person who has the capacity for great faith and she wants, you know, she wants that to, to happen for him. Um, you know, as many, many mothers would, uh, you know, and in a way, I think those people have often talked about the closeness between Augustine and Monica as being kind of neurotic. Yeah, that's true. That is, it's, I think that's a kind of sexist response because I think in that society, where, you know, remember Monica got married at, you know, 12 or 13, if you believe the confessions, he says, you know, at the age of marriage, she got married and the age of marriage was 12, you know, and, um, you know, so her, her children were anywhere from 15 to 20 years younger than her, you know, still, I mean, from our standpoint, standpoint, you know, people who are really, um, you know, not so, so different in age. She was obviously close to them. She was obviously strategizing on their behalf and, do, you know, doing all of that sort of, you know, on the one hand, it sounds like conniving, but on the other hand, it really was expected in that society that woman would, women would make plans for their children and advocate for their children, you know. And I also think that there's, in a sense, I think people are a little bit almost shocked that Monica is just an exuberant, brilliant, thoughtful, opinionated person that people listen to. What's not to like? <laughs> uh, you know, the only thing I could see that one could really say negatively against Monica is that she is a little bit torn between worldly ambition and spiritual ambition for her kids. Um, you know, and uh, I mean, I, if I if I push, I could find other flaws, but you know, but really. I think that particular flaw, which is probably her biggest one, I think is one that it's just really it, it, historically spe- specific to that world, uh, you know, and, and in a way, I think she's actually part of the the sort of cultural churning that that does eventually lead Christianity to be a little bit less exuberant about just you know love of of wealth and so forth not you know although i think you know christians of every age have struggled with the you know with the same thing of wanting the good life here on earth and you know but also wanting 
to have some kind of ethics. So I don't know. I do. Th I do think we should just give Monica a little bit of space. You know, what if she was also oh. conflicted? Oh. What if she was conflicted and yeah, she wasn't yeah. clear in her purposes and she and she had mixed feelings? I mean, then suddenly she becomes human and also she becomes someone we can see as an equal conversation partner for Augustine because yeah. they're both yeah. wrestling yeah. with their inner lives and their outer lives and how to put these pieces yeah. together. I mean, I think that that's a powerful, yeah. that's a much more powerful way to look at Monica than the neurotic mother, which I have to confess is pretty much how I've seen her. Yeah, we've all fallen into it. I have children in their 20s. And I will tell you, just once a week, somebody says something to me. And I realize that I said something that, you know, completely innocent 20 years ago. And they read it back to me like, well, you think blank, 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 whatever it is. And I just I have no understanding of how they managed to take those six words and turn them into me having a draconian policy about X. You know, the way children kind of sometimes... You misunderstand you or project a sort of authority onto you that's frankly, you know, for better or worse, is not real. And there's this story right at the deathbed where Monica says, um, you know, don't worry about where I'm buried. Just, you know, just the main the main thing is is the faith and God will find me wherever I am. And Augustine is so surprised because he was expecting that she yeah, they had to get her back to Africa before she died, you know, and he's trying so hard to fulfill this thing. And then she just sort of says, but you just don't have to do that. You know, and I, I, I just love the fact that that's one of the last exchanges is that he's over here trying so piously to fulfill her expectations. And then it turns out that, you know, it's really all okay. Just, She'd already let it go. Know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I so I that. think, you know, I think those are some of the things we want to think about as well when we think of Monica. That's well, I am really grateful for this work, Professor Cooper. I think it's really fascinating. I think it changes the way that I will read Augustine and it'll change the way that I talk about him and um, and also change the way that I talk about Monica or I will talk about the relationship between Augustine and Una. So I am I couldn't be more grateful. And thank you for this time to share this work with us. Thank you. And thank you for joining me for this podcast. You can email me at insearchof at christiancentury.org. Also go to our website, christiancentury.org slash insearchof to sign up for our newsletter and connect with us. Please follow this podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast app. This helps other listeners find this podcast. This has been a production of The Christian Century, a thoughtful, independent, progressive magazine for today.